0: This is a podcast for serious writers who want to develop their skills in artistry and stand out in a crowded industry by taking intelligent, creative risks. I'm your host, Jonathan Ball. I hold a PhD in literature. I'm the author of uh, numerous books, and I take a very analytical approach to art making emphasizing both efficiency and experimentation i have a new book coming out this year published by coach house books which is my first book in five years and my first poetry book in seven years it's called the national gallery and it contains a host of strange poems including twisted elegies for my iphone uh, sonnets about texas chainsaw massacre i got poems for my children uh, a poem that campaigns to make me the poet laureate of hell and all sorts of uh, strange you know experiments and if you go to jonathanball.com new book so again, it's jonathanball.com new book then you can read the nice things that people have to say uh, about the book uh, filmmaker guy madden has uh, some very nice things to say about it uh, giller prize finalist gary barwin uh, who wrote yiddish for pirates uh, has some nice things to say about it Uh, Author professors Natalie Capel uh, and Daniel Scott Tisdall have some nice things to say. Uh, What I'll say is that it's called the National Gallery because the book is about what value art has today in our public lives and in our private lives and why we should or maybe why we should not create art. Uh, As writers, I think we sometimes have to to stop and ask the question, why write? Uh, So this book is my attempt to answer that question. Uh, by trying to turn what my poetry is inside out and do all sorts of things i've never done before in, in my poetry uh, so like i say you can learn more about the national gallery by going to jonathanball.com new book uh, and there you'll see a form where you can enter your email address and when you do that i'll email you my favorite poem from the book so this is a poem that is otherwise you know not available uh, until you know the book comes out You'll get a sneak peek, and then when we get closer to the book coming out, I'll send you a bunch of information on how to order the book in a way that gives you access to all sorts of bonuses. I'm going to be giving away free books uh, and all sorts of you know really you know special uh, bonus material uh, for people who pre-order um, the National Gallery. Uh, so if you go to jonathanball.com slash new book and enter your email, I'll tell you more about the National Gallery when you do that. Uh, so now let's move on to the episode. So this is the second part of my interview with Tony Burgess, author of Pontypool Changes Everything and a screenwriter of the movie Pontypool, among many other uh, books and films. Um, so Tony and I are talking about a horror. Uh, this is the second part of the interview, as I say. Uh, the first part of this interview is available at jonathanball.com 30. So jonathanball.com 30. That's going to take you to the first part of the interview if you haven't already heard it. Um, in this second part of the interview, uh, Tony and I continue to talk uh, about this broad topic of writing uh, and writing horror. Uh, and uh, we're talking about Tony's life a little bit. We're talking about his books um, that had been released to this point, you know, in the 2015. Um, again, the context of this is me interviewing tony in 2015 so a number of years ago now uh, about his work in a broad sense uh, with the idea that i was going to you know do some more writing on tony Burgess's uh, own work some more criticism i had written a uh, essay uh, prefacing uh, the one of tony's book collections the book i recommend if you're not familiar with tony's work is a book called the beautifully mayhem uh, beauty mayhem is a repackaging of his first three books in an omnibus edition uh, that includes his most famous book uh, pontypool changes everything which was the basis for the horror film pontypool uh, and if you haven't heard of pontypool uh, pontypool is a brilliant uh, little story about a zombie virus that is spread through language um, more or less and so uh, I suggest you go check out that Omnibus Edition. It's a very affordable, you know, roughly twenty bucks, and you can get three books, uh, including you know, Burgess' most famous novel. Uh, plus, it has an introduction uh, by me. Uh, and in the show notes to this episode, I'm actually going to post that introduction. So, if you're not familiar with Tony, or if you want uh, to just know more about what I think about Tony Burgess's work, uh, go to jonathanballcom 3-1-1. That will give you as show notes for this episode. uh, It'll provide you a link to the previous uh, part of the interview, and it'll also uh, give you the essay from the Beauty Mayhem, my essay on Tony Burgess's work uh, that prefaces that book. And there'll be a link where you can find more information about that book and how you can get a hold of that. Um, Another thing I just want to note is if you listen to the last interview. (laughs) Again, these are just recordings that originally Tony has agreed, you know, for me, me to put them online. Um, I, because when I was listening to them again, I thought it was a very interesting conversation. I think it is something that, you know, uh, although part of it was the basis for a believer interview that we did, which is also in the show notes in the, you know, previous uh, episode, com slash 30. You can read that, the believer interview. And, you know, again, this to the first part of this interview. Uh, Although you know we record this, not really with the idea of anyone listening to it, um, I th- it's you know pretty informal and I think really interesting. Um, but there is you know some sort of fun little things. So like if you listen to the last episode, you'll notice that the the episode just ends when Tony's phone goes off. <laughs> we kind of start the episode talking about. it. Uh, cell phones and how neither of us are very good at technology and the episode ends when his just cell phone goes off i noticed when i was editing this all together that you know that's kind of a nice that's roughly half the interview it kind of is a nice weird because the interruption is a nice weird ending i was going to add a little note um just saying oh you know come check out the second part of the ed- episode later but I just thought, you know, it just is funny to me. If you were listening in the episode you were kind of confused about like why the phone rings and the episode just is over, uh, I just thought it was kind of funny. So this episode begins with after Tony has hung up the phone, uh, after having to take the call, um, we kind of get back into uh, the issue. So we just sort of dive cold into the topics uh, that we're discussing, continue our conversation. And so uh, here is the second part of my interview with Tony Burgess. Again, it's a few years old now. This is from 2015. But I think it's a very illuminating, uh, fascinating look at uh, a writer who uh, has you know, a, a strange and brilliant mind and who is probably my favorite writer uh, working today. Uh, so without further ado, the second part, the interview with Tony Burgess. I like that mask. That's Talk funny. about
1: records. This is not a mask. This is oh, really? a, looks like life, a life cast of oh. my face. That was done for uh, a big prosthetic thing that had to be put on uh, for a film we just shot. Oh wow! So that's actually that's you know, great. That's, that's actually my actual face. you even have an
0: exploding head like a scan like exploding sure. head? Or- I kind
1: of do. I've got my uh, my m- jaw, mouth hmm. bubbly. I'm a surviving cult death cult
0: master. Nice. Got
1: gas burned.
0: <laughs> anyway, so <laughs> how did you get? Than this, the idea for Pontypool, like because uh, you know, if, if it wasn't sort of a direct, elk, it wasn't absolutely wasn't. I, which I would,
1: I would love happily cop to. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just wasn't. Uh, it came from a bunch of crazy ideas that I'm still working out, uh, and in fact, is a big part of this next novel. And it just, it, it's, it's, it sounds so ridiculous when I say it out loud. Uh, it's just this belief I have, and having a belief for me is not, probably not the way most people have beliefs. (laughs) I don't actually believe in my beliefs. They're, uh, they're, uh, they're, uh, catalysts, or whatever you want to call it. They're a little ingredient that's going to make something happen. Hmm. So, the, uh, idea that in, uh, late 15th century and early 16th century, the, uh, the scholar, Petrus Ramus. You ever heard of him? Uh, Petrus Ramus, R-A-M-U-S. He was an okay. obscure kind of scholar who was fighting at the time with, at, on universities, and he had this bizarre, neo-Socratic, occult, wacky uh, theory that you, you had to use in classrooms next to no instruments. Hmm. No writing instruments no records, no illustrations, no examples, no demonstrations what you had to do was you had to invest in the architecture of the room all yeah. of the knowledge up until this minute and it was it was an art of memory type of like a memory theater? Sort yes, of like, like a memory theater, theater idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that your, 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 then the, your, your end mm-hmm. goal was to uh, deliver your classroom to heaven if they were able to, with the correct gestures and the correct words sure. and unpacking the, the room in the right way, would, would be a deliverance and, mm-hmm. and would, would, would alter the, the, the reader and the speaker uh, you know,
0: eternally this
1: ritualistic An- anagogical everything yeah yeah hmm. and so anyway I, I he and he uh people like christopher marlowe picked up picked up a lot of his ideas and i just uh, i got sort of really hung up on this notion of uh, uh it just of having these uh w- w- words that would produce uh, these uh, effects on someone. I'm, I'm saying as simply as possible, it would, sure. would have an effect on you, like a scripture would have an effect on your. This would have an effect, and so the, to me, and at the time too, I was very hung up on writing a, a horror a horror novel. So I wanted my my I wanted a zombie novel. And so, I wanted the contagion to be something, and it would have to be and it was it ended up just being that for me because it was available It was something I was thinking a lot about, which was the idea that. A word has that has a f- crosses over to becoming a, f- an art, a physical thing that has those properties and then how it causes these physical effects
0: so if you had before that the idea that you just wanted to do a horror novel specifically a zombie novel where did that idea come from like why why the interest in the horror novel oh
1: I, well, ever novel? since i was a kid yeah that, that's a whole other thing yeah, sure. yeah 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 oh yeah no when i was a kid it was all when I was a kid, it was all horror films and, sure. uh, and Shirley Jackson and Lovecraft and all of that. And and sure. to me, that was just the most exciting, compelling aesthetic and everything about horror films. And, you know, lived on horror films all through my teen years and 20s on, on VHS's <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. way before feeding myself would be that. You know, stacks and stacks of of VHS tapes and watching Phantasm forty-five times a day and just mm. obsessive obsessing over that and yeah I, I, I you know there's a bunch of uh, and why that I think because when I was very young uh, I had those experiences that I kind of still talk about and what I've been talking about mm-hmm. uh, and that came through oddly enough. Uh, cr- making, uh, universal monster models oh. out hmm. of that glue. In my room, the hunchback, the Dracula, the thing. But I would use so much of that fucking glue, and I'd be nine years old, that in the middle of the night at two in the morning, I would wake up hallucinating madly that Dracula was flapping me in the face and the hunchback was stomping off the walls. And it was a regular occurrence in my house <laughs> that everybody would be awoken at three in the morning because I'd be screaming and being
0: chased by Medusa or whatever it was. <laughs> and it was all a, a very direct effect of the glue. So just to keep on zombies for a second, like later on you started, uh, you did the end body problem, which to me is a really interesting zombie novel because it sort of takes the zombies as a waste disposal problem. And it yeah. also just eliminates the zombies as a threat. Like in some ways yeah. they're a threat because of the perception that changes as a result of them being in this corpse shroud or the earth. Um, yeah. But but it to me is like one of the freshest approaches to the zombie novel, you know, not even so far in uh, making the zombies this kind of environmental uh, factor, but in almost just relegating them to a, such a background position that they don't even threaten a character at any point.
1: Yes, yes. Well, I thought to me that's a kind of a logical conclusion of a, of of what seems is 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 apparent on every fucking frame of every zombie movie mm-hmm. that you can move slightly faster than them. And it's not going to take a lot of effort, right? Slightly fat milk. So if we yeah. just sped up our lives by 20%, zombies would be nothing but shadows. You know what I mean? Like mm. nothing but things that follow us. And so there's that, that's always in a zombie mm-hmm. film. It's also part of what makes them horrifying because eventually, if you don't have anywhere to go, then you will be God or whatever, you know, sure. whatever the, yeah. the trap is. And so, yeah, absolutely. That was uh, when I, and once I sort of removed that they became horrible in all of these other sort of other ways that just started to surface with them. Like the, the notion of things of animation, perpetual animation that has point that is pointless and, and uh, never leaving
0: and all the things that, yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's so, it's so interesting that it, it, it in other zombie movies and zombie stories, you tend to have like these other ways the zombies are horrible in addition to the fact that they're coming after you. Yeah. Um but here you just have to remove them coming after you. you know, like it's 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 so you know, such a simple operation on one level, but it it really does open things up in this fascinating way. And then you get yeah. an even darker story than a oh, yeah. zombies, like which which often produce, you know, somewhat hopeful stories, you know, e- even like like I like World War Z, like the book World War Z, which I really like, but I mean it's ultimately yeah. a very uh fast it's ultimately a extremely optimistic book. Oh yeah. Well,
1: and, yeah. Well, and they become, you know, yeah. They all they always always become, you know, stories about our better, you know, our better natures. Even after yeah. they're stories about our worst nature, Point because together you're going
0: to, to fight them. And, well, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: you know. yeah. And in that, you're going to say, "Oh my God, we've got You know, we've got we've got dark elements with us too. You know, mm-hmm. all the the kind of like fairly, you know, fairly reassuring and uh, obvious. Mm-hmm. Observations about human life, or whatever human behavior, social social life, but that to me is just sort of never all that interesting. Um, although I do I do enjoy it. I mean, I, I, I'm a mm-hmm. zombie fan, right? So I will watch. Uh, one of the things, and this is kind of goes back to what you were talking about before about where the monster is. And when I was uh, in my late teens and early twenties, and when the in the sort of boom of those the, the B grade VHS tape shitty movies right mm-hmm. where you had things like driller killer which is actually a great movie but you had things like driller killer Phantasm, another great movie but you know sleepaway camp and pieces and i spit in your grave and all of those films uh i, I can re- watch them over and over and over again and I, what was compelling to me was looking for a film that i felt the director or the people making it were awful uh, and that hmm. the film was terrible, and it didn't even have to do much. But if I could sense that the people, the hands making this thing, were awful, monstrous people, with who would who would just assume kill me as as you know what I mean, and, yeah. and that would be the thing. I was obsessed with that. You hmm. showed up, in th- you, you see it showing up in th- in different places. I think that Rob Zombie gets achieves that in something like uh, Devil's Rejects. It, it feels like the person making it isn't well and isn't 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 going uh mm. is is, ha- is happy with things that repulse us. Uh, you know sure. repulse and pull us apart i mean because you know the scene in the motel where they're taunting uh you know freeze company chick uh, you know it's rob Zombie thinking this is what we want to do we yeah. want to we want to rape and torture that fucking bitch From three's company and you realize that just it it kills the film the film is no longer happening it's this horrible thing that you are now part and that's always something that scares uh, terrifies and and that's what I try to sometimes try to get to is like a feeling that the person has that uh, there's a a pair of very cold hands coming up behind them while they're reading this and it doesn't like them reading it
0: that's the one thing I always uh, found impressive about it makes me think of um, the difference to me between like John Carpenter and Hitchcock, Cock, who I both enjoy. Yep. But yeah, I feel like there's a real difference in that they're both these kind of clinical technicians. But Carpenter, yeah. I think you really feel like he is a clinical technician who is in control and yeah. is and is interested in a distance. Uh, but whereas yeah. Hitchcock is all those things, but also is just in, in a movie like Psycho, he keeps trying to take your attention to the fact that you are enjoying watching the woman get yes. killed. well
1: yeah i mean and that's in a rear window it's in a bunch yeah. of films, absolutely and, and yeah and, like, and that yeah i think that's what we all love about hitchcock is that you feel like you're in an unhealthy mind's mm-hmm. uh you know little playroom and that that it wants you to play with its toys right and, and you shouldn't be
0: <laughs> yeah and, and like to me that's what's always most impressive or affecting in psycho is that the moment where after the shower scene is kind of in, kind of near its end, there's this great shot where she kind of reaches towards the like reaches her hand out, and it seems like she's reaching towards you for help. Right. And then he kind of pans a little bit, and the motivation is oh she's grabbing the shower curtain. But initially right. you can't see the shower curtain Lovely. in the frame. Yeah, yeah. You don't know what yeah. she's doing. And, yeah. and and there's just like the split second before you get a motivation for the action. In, yeah. in the real in the space of the film. Yeah, it does kind of seem like she's reaching for you to help, and you're not helping her. Yeah, uh, yeah, and and in fact, you would rather watch her die. Like, and that yes. seems to be like the aestheticization of everything in that whole sequence. Absolutely, it all seems to yeah. push towards that, and it's prefaced with you know, literally a POV shot from Norman's perspective. So you yeah. get like the like you just get equated with Norman in so many ways in that film. Oh yeah, and then he's the new oh. main character. Yeah, uh, yeah, and, like, yeah. It's, it's such when a, you have
1: that that on mm. that great eye shot of yeah you see looking in which is you know the 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 is yeah. uh uh, uh Deschamps piece so it's called La Donne, i think where where you have to stand on a box and look through a, mm-hmm. a peeper in a, in a hallway and that's all that's in the gallery but inside there is this mannequin of this naked woman right, mm. and with a typical yeah, alchemical machinery that Duchamp puts in stuff, but but yeah, it's the same that great feeling of oscillating between being watching and being watched, right? And and being this hard thing on the outside we're looking at. Which, yeah, great stuff. And, and he like, he get he gets that very quickly in in uh, like yeah. economically in that scene. Yeah, great.
0: but but it's yeah. also another like I always think of the other film I'm really uh, obsessed with is the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where to me, like, you have this great movement in that movie where suddenly after he's killed by the third person, um, Leatherface, you, the camera stays with the Leatherface, and he moves into that next room, and he's in the uh, chair, and he's worrying. <laughs> and you can see, like, there's anxiety on his face, and, and you kind of get the uh, impression in that scene that, well, um, he's deciding, like, in the plot of it, he's deciding... You know he has to go out to start hunting them because where are they coming from? Uh, and to me, it's an interesting scene because it, it starts to not exactly ask you to sympathize with Leatherface, but I, like you're now in the position, you're in the room with Leatherface. Yes. You and Leatherface are together. You can almost understand his mind in a sense, yeah. uh, even though he yeah. has no mind. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't. It really takes a couple interesting turns there. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But but like that closeness or that proximity to the monster, where you start to like. Yeah, I feel like you're really... That's another film where, as you say, it does feel like it's made by horrible people. <laughs> yes, oh, exactly. And the incompetence mm-hmm. is actually
1: terrifying. Yes. So when the camera isn't working properly or the lighting is mm-hmm. bad, you realize that the desire is greater than the competence or mm-hmm. the, the will to get this thing achieved is greater than the, the desire to make this movie. Mm-hmm. And that somehow is, like, monstrous. That, yeah. That the film isn't as important as, you know, getting her on a hook and getting mm-hmm. things upside down and throwing that towards this and that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, that's a that's that's gorgeous.
0: Um, one thing that I kind of – just to talk about cash and corners a bit uh, maybe, but I think that's something you see in a lot of your books. Like it seems to me like there's this kind of movement in your books where they kind of like barrel very quickly – past some sort of event horizon, you know, like there's, there's some moment or some traumatic thing that occurs and it it all sort of plays out this trauma in a manner of speaking. Like it's interesting to hear you talk about it, kind of trying to get kind of close to the event of the book, because it does seem like almost the books, like on one hand, the story often revolves around uh, at least initially, like there's something that sets in motion, this terrible event, and everything is now wrong. Uh, yes. and, 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 I, and in Cash Town, it seems like you maybe most clearly, uh, like, draw a parallel there with, like, in that book, you draw a lot of parallels to, you know, the whole uh, World Trade Center attacks. Right. Uh, and you have, like, this great moment early in that book where you really get the sense that he's, he's killed her because she didn't go through the green light. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then because and he doesn't even really know why, but that's somehow why. And since he did that, he, now things are just unfolding, and like there's a chain reaction yes. that has been set off. Yeah. And yeah. it's got an interesting movement in that 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 book where right at the start, you know, you had when, when he when he kills her, he starts to relate in the third person uh, in the past tense how he killed right. her, yeah, like, as if he's somewhere stepping outside himself. Then he just keeps starts talking about nine eleven. Yeah. And imagining you were on the plane going into the building. and What would that be like in slow motion? Uh, yeah. And then, you know, by the end of the book, you've got, of course, that birdhouse, um, like the 9-11 yes. birdhouse and everything. Yeah. Uh, again, it's a, it's a story that seems to me in some ways to um, like almost kind of cleanly be about this sort of 9-11 and more successfully about nine eleven than a lot of American 9-11 books. Yeah, um, but yeah. Then at the same no, time, it's, it, yes. there's some ways it's not exactly that thing. Like, yes, it's not yeah. cleanly, it, it's, yeah. but it's kind of bound up in this traumatic, like almost like a, I don't know what you'd call it, but like a, yeah, it just feels to me like early in these books you pass through an event horizon or like there's some moments yes. where it passes through yeah. an event.
1: There's a couple of things there. I mean, and one yeah. of them was, yes, you're right. I mean, there was, a, I had a couple of friends. One of them clearly who, di- who died uh, just a, f- a couple of years ago from a uh, sudden heart attack after kind of drinking himself to death. But he was going through a very hard time uh, at the time of the World Trade Center thing. Went through a very hard time. And when that happened, uh, he couldn't, he was terribly frustrated because he couldn't explain to anyone powerfully enough how much this mattered. Hmm. And it wasn't, it was, it was that nobody really understood how deeply and how traumatic and how, you know, devastating this was. Clearly, he meant to him, Mm -hmm. and clearly he meant that it resonated because he knew his, probably knew his life was pretty much over, but for the dying, right? Mm -hmm. And, And that somehow this, this would keep him alive a little bit longer, is what I think. Uh, But he had to, like, uh, he had to uh, corner people and explain to them, try to explain to them how great this moment was, and nobody would understand. Hmm. That was a big thing for him. Nobody would ever understand, no matter how many different ways he described it. And, you know, he he couldn't wake people up what i'm not sure but he just that was his frustration so yeah i was absolutely thinking about him and a number of other people like that that i knew at the time and still sort of know people that for them that is the moment that their life made sense and after and everything after that somehow was lined up in a strange way either to die or to, to in some other meaningful way you know some other meaningful mm-hmm. Another weird literary sort of reference that that always is, especially the birds, yeah. is the beginning of uh, uh, Maldoror, the Lutremont book. He has a flock of, I think it's albatross or something, great big seabirds coming, or I can't remember what they're, condors, I don't know, they're great big birds coming towards the reader. And, uh, uh, one of them chips its, its beak, I think on a, on, a, on a cloud or something, and the beak is broken, causing the bird to tumble down, and all of the other birds that are following it follow it towards the ground, and then the narrator warns and says that this book is clearly not normal, and this is the warning, and we should heed it and not go any further, because this should not happen, that a bird's beak is broken on a cloud mm. at the beginning of a book. And then they all tumble to their death. This is clearly a, a terrible book that will change you for the worse, right? And so that to me has always been the greatest moment ever. And so yeah, that was part of uh, part of that whole the the the, the birdhouse thing sure. and the and, and the planes and it, having it resonate with in that way with my fr- with my
0: friend, and in that way to me anyway, most of these books are autobiographical. Well, you even say at one point, multiple changes everything, you know, you, you just start, it just says autobiography and then... Oh yeah, it's totally, a,
1: it, to me it's always, and I don't understand why
0: not, when mm-hmm. people say, well, I don't mean you've got s- s- vampires in your world and blah, 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 well, blah. But, but there is interesting in horror, there is like this tradition of um, not, like the divorce of the narrator from the events of the narrative. You have two tropes. Yeah. You have the, you know, this narrator is piecing together the story. Uh, and yeah. you have the Lovecraftian, you know, it's a non, all these um, insistences on the reality of the story. And the like, real manuscript, yeah. you know, and this right. is what it said. Right. I, you know, right. uh, I pieced yeah. all these things together. Then, yeah. then you have the other trope of like totally sober, clear, third person, divorced narration. Yes. And to me, yeah. what's interesting is like things that are in between them, like Hill House. Yeah, where even yeah. the narrator, who is a third-person narrator who knows that characters are thinking you know, and so on and so forth, even the narrator does not know what Haunts Hill House. Right. Uh, and yeah. And, yes. Lovely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's like this disturbing, you know, omniscience where it's limited only insofar as what Haunts Hill House, but otherwise yes. you have like an omniscient narrator. Right. Right. Lovely. Yeah. 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 That's perfect. And yeah, I feel like <coughs> you're almost always in this interesting space where like the actual um relationship between the narrator and the story is as you say uh like it, it just is troubled <laughs> and, yeah. and unstable yeah. uh, yes. and and almost an antagonism uh, but also like it's hard to say even who the narrator is on some level like i don't know just maybe the most um the one where you kind of get the most, I guess you'd say, like, obvious play with that idea, where you, where you have the narrator, because he's not a very good writer, accidentally right. including himself in the story, and therefore right. he becomes a character because he doesn't realize, oh, I shouldn't yep. say I, you know, because I'm writing yep. a third person yep. story. And then it starts to become more and more unstable, and yeah. you get the sense that Idaho is now in the author position. Like, you get all these interesting movements. Um, I get, I mean, let's, can I just jump back to that for a second? And, sure, like, yeah. What made you want to write a YA novel? Uh, ECW asked me. Sure.
1: So I sat down with. Uh, it was a pitch. What? I mean, I was pitched on it. And it was Jen Hale and uh, somebody else who's no hmm. longer there. It was her idea, actually. Hmm. Sat down and said, Oh, we think you'd make a great YA writer. Why? And Why I do they think like, that? Like, it seems to me like. I don't, you you know the what? Worst that's YA not the fir- well, yeah. <laughs> and that's not the first person. I still get people say that to me. Huh. I got some, got some filmmaker who wants to make a, a children's film with me because he thinks I'd be a natural. And. I'll do it, you know. And so then, yeah. So yeah. Y- that was supposed to be a YA novel, mm-hmm. and I, I kind of like when I started it, I felt great because I thought, I'm going to use a pseudonym. Nobody's going to know it's me, and it's yeah. going to be. I can do anything I want now. <laughs> like just, I, I have until before. then. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I just, I just kind of used all these ideas in this really kind of freeing way, and, uh, and then. Uh, uh-huh you know i think ha- part of one one of the struggles i had when i put the novel down for a long time was when it was sort of like this is not a ya novel And i go yes it is you know and, uh, it has to be marketed as a ya novel or i, I wouldn't have written it this way anyway but uh, so that's why it was a ya novel however i have sort of done like the Mouse of beauty is a mock ya novel it's wow. a, it's subtitled children's stories for children Boys and Girls or something.
0: I think, are you talking about Fishing for Lovers or? Hell no, 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 no,
1: or... uh, Hellmouse of Beauty, the first oh, Yeah, Fishing
0: for Girls and Boys, that's right.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, so, uh, I'm, I'm not sure what that is, except sort of returning to, uh, you know, when you think about a, vo- a narrative voice that you trust and that is not is not troubled at all, mm-hmm. and it's in some of the first books you read, Sure. Uh, uh, but the ironic thing, I think, is that those books actually directly trouble the voice much more confidently than books you read as an adult.
0: Well, the one I think of is the monster at the end of this book. Uh, you know, yeah. like that's the most confident, troubled narration uh, in a way. And I guess it's very solid. Yeah, metafictional situation, which again you're immersed in as a child. You know, you're yeah. turning the pages and wrecking his walls and stuff. Yeah, uh, and there's yeah. the fear, the fear of the monster, and then but we're going towards it at the same time, and it's fun, yeah. fantastic. And it's yeah. so much more confident than so many other books.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you, there's all kinds of like I think Never Ending Story is mm-hmm. one of yeah. them. Uh you know, they're all they're they're every, even the way that you know Lewis Carroll plays with it. Well, but uh, uh, yeah, I mean, that was sort of um, the excitement for me, anyway. The idea of of going to a, a YA novel because it takes it it takes that trusted voice too, and because that's part of the play p- the play the playground, right? Mm-hmm. Is that 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 adult voice uh, that more more experienced voice that is going to be fucked with.
0: Um, uh, one thing, I, one book of yours I really like, uh, especially is Ravenna Gets, and I like to describe it as a, it's, it's a short story book, but then everybody in the stories just gets killed, <laughs> and so yeah. like there's like a story unfolding, and then somebody smashes the window and kills everyone in the story, so the story just ends yeah. prematurely, and then it goes to the next house, and then eventually yeah. you're in a novel because yeah uh, because of how it failed to be a short story book. <laughs> Perfect, <laughs> like, exactly right. <laughs> like where, where did that sort of you know well it's a funny thing engineered in, in advance or well no it was like kinda... it
1: was one of those things that i talked about before where the book is eating the book as you're mm-hmm. writing it. you know it's a cannibal process and so i i started out yes with this very strict idea i sat down with a and it was triggered by you know for good or bad or you know probably not for the reasons most people would do this but i there was uh all this kind of information in the news at the time, it was during the sort of really bad period in the suburbs of Baghdad. Hmm. And all these reports of different people taking over different parts of streets, not even entire neighborhoods, parts of streets, and that the goal was to move laterally and kill everybody over there, or kill everybody Hmm. there. In the meantime, in, in this checkered way, normal life was going on. So you would have scenes like, you know, somebody's somebody's packing their school bag and getting a thing ready, and the next thing you know, uh pellets rip the entire family to shreds. And this is not noticed by anyone, because everyone is, is involved in what's happening next, whatever. Yeah. And so I took that idea in, in a very kind of strict way, uh got a map of Collingwood. Went out into Collingwood and sort of took a note of street addresses and names and stuff like that and wrote them all down. And then I, you know, I I'd give it every everyone would get a maybe a page and a half or two, and it would it would begin as if this was not going to happen. So I, the, the narrator wouldn't be able to prepare, wouldn't be able to make it meaningful, would have missed that opportunity because didn't see this happening. And so it would have to be. Oh, it was a failure because everybody died. But we'll start again. We'll move down to the next house. Start again. Okay. And the morning happened, and so and so came in, and, and then. But the narrative is working in good faith because it looks like he's setting up themes, and there, you know what I mean. There is a narrative here that's happening, and it's, and he clearly is investing his his toolbox in, to make this work. And then, it will have to start again. And then, I, I was I was kind of stood back and let this go on for a while, I realized that. For this to happen properly, it can't behave like this anymore because mm-hmm. it, it, all we, we know now that the st- we will no longer, we will always wait for that to happen. So like. A page and a half in. We will wait for where's the bullet coming from, where's the death coming from. And so then it had to, the slaughter had to happen from somewhere within the story from a different uh, location in the structure of the story, rather than through the window or, or in the narrative pieces. It had to sort of happen that the story's ability to proceed is messed with. Yeah. Its, its ability to observe is now, its ability to mean is sort of played with in a way that's violent. And again, if and other, mean- other things like that. And so then it becomes, like you said, it becomes a failed short story collection because it tried to succeed mm-hmm. too too
0: much, it got too pure-hearted, and then uh, it
1: uh, becomes a uh, whatever it does, and, and that changes too to a bunch of different
0: things. Yeah, and, and in some weird way, it almost seems like it kind of passes again, like this point where now it's a novel by default because you know you you've connected the stories through murder and it's being like but, but yeah now we realize um, oh one town has decided to murder the other town and yeah. uh, that is you know. Now it is a story about that broader yeah. uh, slaughter, like as a generalized yeah. kind of concept, and, and then it starts to move forward, and it's still kind of unstable, but in, in a very yeah. different um, yeah. way, I guess, I'd say. Uh, yeah, and it, it makes me think of um, a lot of what you've been talking about. Makes me think a little bit of how I, I see uh, David Lynch often working. Where right. the one thing I like to say about Lynch is like Lynch realized that. You don't have to actually have a story that makes sense on a surface level as long as it makes sense it feels like a story like if it so yes. if it has like the structure of a story and it feels like a story uh, then almost like it, it almost frees up the surface level to accomplish any task to do to do anything it wants
1: and mm-hmm. this goes right back to for me I, I understand that completely it's a, it's a, I think it's a very important uh, thing to get mm. Uh, but uh, uh when i was sort of thinking in my mind how to create uh the dynamics of an aggressive punk band through speaking in front of an audience and it's it, 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 you have to there are certain things you have to satisfy first uh, and, and your audience has to feel like this is they're getting what they think they're getting in, and then you can do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. you can you can upend them and surprise the shit out of them. The bait they think they're taking is not there at all anymore. The thing that they thought they were, they've already invested, they're in a little bit too far to get back out again. But anyway, yeah, and, and, and with, with Lynch, yeah, you can do that with
0: film. Well, let's uh, talk a bit more about film and, cause, and how you've kind of moved into film, like maybe as a way of, Answering that question because it's getting like when I look at Lynch, like I see, I like to kind of look at his screenplays and, and just kind of his, how his movies are structured. And you really do see, in many respects, like it's it is the absolute on one level, it is absolutely conventional in its structure, yes. at least. Yeah, but 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 it doesn't like. And if you look at Eraserhead, for example, Eraserhead is almost to a t, maybe without him, I assume without him even planning this, right? It's almost yeah. to a t like that classic cliche of like the hero's journey and, you know, there's a monster sure, absolutely. and he kills the monster and, you know, uh, is rewarded through heaven. Like there's all sorts of like really specific, he gets an object in the mail. It's like this, like there's, there's all sorts of ways in which it just literally conforms and, and lost highway to me, which is the other, another really interesting Lynch film. Like it has that, yeah. um, those are the two best flinch films. I've yeah, like, I, I, I feel so. I really like Mulholland Drive a lot, too, but, like... Th- I won't those... watch Mulholland Drive. You what? I won't watch it. Some people are really against it. Like, my friend... No, David I'm Emmanuel not against it. I'm it. afraid of it. Sure. People have told me about it, and I'm like, I don't know if I'm ready for that. Well, but anyway. it, it has to a really brilliant scene in the middle of it. I um, oh! But in any case... Um, but 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 I think like especially Lost Highway, like when, when with the mystery man, when the mystery man comes to him at the party, like to me that is one of the most brilliant scenes. But it's perfectly uh, conventionally structured yeah. as a scene, yeah. even yeah. though it makes zero sense in, in, yes. in another level. Yeah, uh, and I feel like even in that movie, there's a great scene later in that film where. Lynch is almost making fun of the fact that we want it to make sense. Like, there, there's this one yeah. point where later in the film, uh, Patricia Arquette's character, one of her characters, says, uh, laughs at him uh, because uh, and, and asks him, you know, you want to know why? <laughs> you know, Yeah, and yeah it always yeah. seems like yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: he's Lynch is laughing at us, uh, yes. to me, yeah. And, and, yeah. and 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 the need to understand it as a sensible story. Yes. And, yeah. and, but at the same time, he wants it to feel that way in, a, in, in some level, and, yeah. and uh, so, anyways, what, I'm just wondering, like, since you've been started, been doing a lot more screenwriting, uh, yeah. certainly than used to it, and of course, you even adapted Pontypool. The most obvious thing um, about the Pontypool movie is that it has almost no vi- actual narrative connection to the book, no. um, uh, and is. Um, I'm just wondering, like, how do you approach screenwriting? And your books, you also seem like an unusual person to write a screenplay because your (laughs) books really aren't filmic. Uh, And in in some respects, they're, like, impossible to adapt to film. Like, they almost seem meant to be unfilmable. (laughs) But you've adapted one and uh, you're working in film. Yeah, I'm just curious to know, like, how you approach the film differently, or, or, or well, one of
1: the things for sure is that uh, I don't direct any of the films I'm writing. Yeah, that makes a big difference. Sure, uh, uh, you know. Uh, I want to do that, but at the same time, I I just need to get myself geared up to doing something like that. But for the films that I've been doing, writing lately, I mean, I'm really a hired hired guy that comes in the room, give me a bunch of ideas, I'll go off and write it, because I learned how to write screenplays working with Bruce. Sure. You know what I mean? It's a real kind of tradesperson thing, that I now know how to turn out a screenplay. Uh, And I can put some of my stuff on it, but... Mostly, I know how to take your ideas and make you happy with the script that I write. And it'll be the kind of film you can make and, you know, your distributors will buy. And whether it's any good or not, it's not uh, – that's not my concern, really. But anyway, well, so that's kind of it's this
0: – not your fault whether it's no, but, good well, or Well, I know. To, so, know, yeah, <laughs> like, which is
1: kind of good and bad. But yeah. anyway, yeah. So, I mean, and I, en- I enjoy these films because I, I have a big passion for, you know, uh, be great. Uh, uh, ambitious B grade, you know, uh, illogical films, and uh, I think they should be made with c- confidence, mm-hmm. uh, like they used to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, so that's that that part of it. Uh, because for a long time, like Bruce, kind of, uh, I didn't know how to write a screenplay. I mean, he he walked he he walked in and optioned Pony Pool, and he said, you know, in his kind of like his way, you want to write the screenplay, and I'm like, yeah because i need the work you know what i mean like like writers don't really have a lot of opportunities to make money so yeah i'll do that i had no idea how to write a screenplay and so i just like the way he sort of made me feel like i could which is one of his his charms uh, so i ran off and i i wrote a screen i wrote i wrote a screenplay just the same way you, you do anything you think you can and uh uh he loved it, and I actually had flowers sent to my house, hmm. and, and he did this big show, which I realize now is the director sending the flowers to the actress, you know what I mean, to sort of like make her to try harder or something <laughs> It's not really love. <laughs> yeah. And so anyway, so the, the script got, and he, he loved it, uh, and it got sent out, because that's what happens, and I wasn't, it got sent out to readers, and blah, 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 producers are going to have notes, and shit like that, That'll and everybody hated it. I'm like, what the fuck? What? <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm, I'm a crazy writer. You're supposed to love everything I do. I can't yeah. make mistakes. I don't make mistakes in my world. You know. And they're like, oh, no. And so then other people brought it. So it was about 10 years hmm. of me writing and rewriting 20, 25 drafts. Wow. Completely different drafts for probably at least 10 or 12 different producers over time. Good ones. Hmm. And working with Bruce and different different people, and, and at different times, co-writers that come on and then they go and come and go, and come and go. But really, for me, that was learning how to actually write a screenplay, which which does make a difference much more so, I think, than maybe I have an had an intuitive sense of how to write a story or how to write fiction or or that kind of thing because. I, I read, I'm not sure how that, how I, you know, and even then I, I probably play more as a, with my incompetence than with my, uh, my, my skills. But anyway, so it took a very long time to figure out how to do that. I still haven't written the film that is uh, one that I would tell, direct, you know sure. what I mean? And I've often wondered about that because some people go, well, just, you go off tones and you come up with something and come back with us. I'm like, no, you can't do I can't do that because I'm going to come back with something and you're not going to, you're <laughs> going to be on page one and you're going to go, we can't, we can't do anything with this. Yeah. This is fucking crazy. You know, I, uh, so I'm, I'm waiting to some, working with some people that, you know, I've been talking to about the possibility of me directing a, a feature, which I'd love to do, which I'm, that's one of the things that I need to do. And, and, uh, and, and try my hand at that. So. Uh, you know, the whole screenwriting thing is, is still an apprenticeship for me, even, even 15 years on.
0: I want to jump back maybe, uh, you know, before I can let you go, I want to jump back to something that you were talking about, um, not, you know, today, but earlier, where you, in, in, in the kind of other part of the interview that I was doing earlier, you were talking at one point about how in some ways what you see yourself doing is fatic fiction, and it has right. this, like, phatic um, uh, interest or goal, I suppose it might say, rather than um, what we might otherwise think of fiction yeah. doing. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I can see how, in some ways, that starts to connect to this process that you've developed and some of the concerns or the aesthetic interests you have here. But I wonder if you could maybe just talk a bit more about what you maybe mean by phatic fiction. And, and the kind of question I specifically have is, like, well, what is then the goal, the um the, the we t- we think of you know phatic speech as a, you know something that's expressing rather than really having a meaningful component yeah. Um, yeah. or and so what I'm wondering is like well, what are these things expressing like what are okay, these words well, expressing all right well the, by phatic i mean
1: uh by phatic language mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean to me phatic is emptying emptying The instrument Mm -hmm. of content so that it becomes apparent to you that I am here because that's all that's that this can do is say I am here Mm -hmm. there is no other freight there is no other direction Mm -hmm. there is no other lesson there is no other content material and anything that I might put there will interfere with the signal sure and you will know. You will no longer know if I'm here or not. Uh, uh, so, <laughs> I very. I, I don't believe that I have anything, or that I've ever. This is just going to sound so insane. That I. I don't believe that I have ever said or thought anything, or heard or read anything that was of any value, unless. It was uh, disposable, ephemeral, and losable when the far more important feature of that instrument is to let you know, I am here. Everything else interferes with that. Everything else is is, is, is a problem. Sure. The The only thing that's... Can possibly be successful in any what we conventionally call a meaningful way is for you to know that i am here and me to know that you are here and there isn't any like this i'm 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 sounding like a mystic now but there isn't anything else and so uh uh which is one of the reasons why i'm quite comfortable with my books falling apart and the freight disappearing sorry i mean that's just that sounds ridiculous i know uh but uh i don't think it sounds ridiculous
0: Uh, what i think is interesting about it is um that you're working in with horror and so to me i guess that i wonder like is horror the best material to work with to you know to 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 indicate you know that i am here or is i am here producing horror
1: yeah, a- <laughs> well, that's a very good one. I mean, well, it could be that they are good; they service each other well, hmm. and that, and maybe that we, we, you know, you could go to the Stephen King's hierarchy of, yeah. you know, what you want to do, and maybe what I want to do is say hello. That's my A game, right? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. and to, and then to have all of this other content would be my hmm. C game, right? That that's going to give give other people something else to talk about.
0: I find that fatic. Fiction, sort of. Pro- I find it so interesting because it, it kind of produces this, especially in horror, because it, it yeah, it kind of produces this interesting situation where maybe it's horrible that you're here, or maybe it's horrible. Oh no, exactly. You no, might lose exactly. that message, uh, and yes. like the, the hereness yeah. is lost, or maybe you know the form is horrible. Like uh, w- yeah. one thing I find when I teach your books is that. Uh, some like or, or I've done this. Some other, a few other books that I've taught. Like um, this, Stephen Graham Jones has a great book called Demon Theory, uh, which uh, again, when I teach it, it becomes really like when I teach Pontypool, it becomes very disturbing for the students. That it is not a normal book. Like and they, right. they find the formal difference, uh, the way that it, it is kind of again almost a category. Violation or a transgressive thing, like as a book, like the form of it is is monstrous somehow. It's it's
1: perverse and it's embarrassing Mm -hmm. because it's not, it's not yeah, it didn't come that way. And they find
0: it disturbing that you're talking to them, like 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 in body pool, people are very disturbed by the autobiographical segments or like the ones that are meant, you know, clearly as a kind of autobiographical intrusion. Yeah, Um, like they find that really disturbing, and and they're not used to it, and. Again, like uh, to me, it's it's really disruptive. fascinating. Yeah. It's disruptive, yeah. 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 And it, on one hand, I think I think it kind of comes out of that tension that you were, you kind of talk about, and and again, the tension I see in Lynch a lot, and where it becomes horrible often in Lynch is where it seems like it's a movie, but it's not operating like a movie, right? Uh, and you yeah, know, you kind of it just feels wrong. Like it feels like yes. he, it shouldn't be. Uh, and yet, you know, here it is, insisting on his presence.
1: Yes. Yeah. Oh, no, I love, that. I love that. I love that. I mean, and that goes to a whole bunch of different things. Uh, one of them, uh, well, uh, uh, that uh, to be here is, is, is a disruption. The, the, something phatic is something we quickly get rid of and, and, and treat as if it isn't there at all yeah you know, hello yeah hello you no know, it's the most formal kind of
0: mm-hmm.
1: reminds me of the the way uh uh things that are considered the most spontaneous are often the most codified sure you know what I mean yeah. like uh well and that great the great argument which i i refer i refer to all the time because it's something that keeps my head thinking good old Rosalind Krauss did a bunch of papers on uh uh the difference between a Magritte and a a, uh, a dolly, or, or no, the difference between a, fo- a, a surrealist photograph and a uh, a Magritte, hmm. and that they are both achieving the same thing, and one of them is, you know, one of them is completely banal, and just, it could a photograph of anything. It's the act of photography, which is automatic, right? And the other is the Magritte, which is the presentation of well, autom- automatism, you know, as as an as, as a as a clinical idea of automatism. They're both referring to the same thing, but as products, as things in front of you,
0: you know, they're both live disruptions, but they're completely, completely different. Being here makes me think also of Ligotti, and like I just read um, uh, "Conspiracy Against the Human Race," which is his nonfiction book about. Pe- pessimism uh, yeah. and you know he, he, he but regarding has this interesting um and it's not original to him he's kind of talking about the history yeah. of it but yeah. uh, th- that interesting idea that somehow consciousness is a monster uh, yeah. and a monstrous thing and like and the and the presence of you here is potentially um horrifying like in and of yes. itself like yeah. at least from a certain point of view uh, whereas like from another position of course the the monster is you know like the monster is there and you have to get rid of the monster, you know. Yeah. There's, again, these kind of interesting, there's just this, the horror perspective of I am here is, you know, either I'm here in the nightmare or, you know, my present. I am the monster. Right. Uh, And uh, I think while you've got, like, more positive ways to insist on one's presence, it's, what's interesting to me is how the books are, to me, seem really radical and sort of taking on the mantle of the monster yeah uh, and there's an anxiety that is produced by them but i don't feel they have and, that, and that's where i f- that's where i f- to me they seem really interestingly radical you know, where they don't seem concerned about their own monstrosity no no <laughs> no and nor nor would they
1: mm-hmm. i just don't think they would i mean because that would require them to sort of occupy you looking at, at them mm-hmm. or you understanding them and, you know, like it's not like a, a snapping turtle running around in the muck goes, oh, my yep. God, my horrible mouth, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but it uh, is the difference between, I think, the metafictional approach that you were talking about not doing and this kind of maybe approach that you have. Uh, yeah. And where, say, like, In the Mouth of Manus by Carpenter or some of those uh, other, you know, otherwise interesting horror works sort of fail. Like, they fail maybe in the moment of you
1: can tell when they fail the moment mm-hmm. for me anyway tell yeah. the moment they fail because ref- they, they 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 lean against a stable frame of reference that they didn't have before then. and then from then on in that that frame of reference will never be exposed again sure it will now be hidden in in in, in the in the in the, uh, in the thing and it will no longer uh, it will no longer matter anyway that, and that you know you can see that in all kinds of things do that uh jacob's ladder did that to yeah I remember, very disappointingly and uh i mean i i have uh, had to do that with film and been forced to do that where you know i thought fuck sakes man like an ejecta I, just, I, I i we were having a problem how do we resolve what is the ending going to be and i said well just have the ending uh him and the mon- the monster are combined in this kind of physical pancake that slid out of the truck into the ditch and the truck went off into the thing. But nobody ever found them. And so the last half of the movie is them sort of barely alive, like just sort of like bubbling along the floor of the forest, you know, trying to figure out how to keep going. Now the movie is no longer there. You know, and they're like, no, no we can't you know what I mean? <laughs> so you have got to put in all of the 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 elements in there. same even the same with Pawnee pool, but it, uh the the film, but in that case, uh i I and Bruce helped me too. I mean, we were very subversive mm-hmm. on set around the things that the producers and other people wanted us to do to make it work and um, and even actors, too, like that like, like last speech that McCaddy had <laughs> the wheel and devil, and this is what you do, and mm-hmm. it <clears throat> it doesn't it doesn't make a fucking lick of sense. It's absolutely ridiculous it makes not a lick of sense it is completely <laughs> meaningless and is in the place of you know where the, those kinds of speeches should be but it absolutely is connected to nothing
0: yeah you know i've I, I, I i've got to let you go but uh yep but um but i but i think you know well maybe we can talk more about this another time but like i think sure you know in film you have i mean you're automatically in this position where the camera is God and the camera's looking at things from God's perspective, and so you the instability starts to bleed away unless you really, really Insist struggle to maintain yeah. it, which of course is yeah. economically not viable a lot. But yeah. Um, yeah. but I'm gonna let you go just because I've got to run uh, off now. Yeah, I got
1: I got things to do now. But much. thanks so much, and uh, yeah, no I'll, problem. I'll kinda,
0: like pull this into like the interview, and I'll send you something to look at before I send it anywhere else, and you, okay, you know, maybe make some changes or whatever you want to do. Um, but, yeah, thanks. This is great. Uh, awesome. Uh, yeah, so Any anytime you want to do anything, follow up, let me know. Got oh, yeah, great. Random question. I'm,
1: I'm always available to you, Mr. J. Ball.
0: Well, thank you. Nice to talk to you. And, yeah, we'll talk Absolutely. again. Right. For sure, man. Bye. Ciao.